0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Uh, as he continued to go through uh, the Gospel of Luke, that's where we'll re- resume. Uh, we're going to pick up in Luke 13, starting at verse 22. That's where we are today. So, And also, uh, it's been great. You know, the, I don't know if it's Thanksgiving season, Christmas season, or just God's providence, several people uh, visiting our church who actually have been here before, even several former members. So that's always a delight to see uh, the saints coming and visit. So thank you for being with us today. Uh, We are blessed by your presence. So we trust you have a blessed time with the saints in our fellowship today. So let's go ahead and look at God's word together, Luke 13. We're going to cover verses 20. Well, we'll start at verse 22. Uh, It goes Luke 13, to 30 is the paragraph that goes together. It's a unit there. This is narrative. This is history. This is true history. This really happened in the life of Jesus Christ, his ministry. His ministry lasted about three plus years. The Lord Jesus, he was silent for 30 years, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. Um, but began his ministry officially at age 30 and just did the will of God for three and a half years, preaching all over Israel, the land of promise to the Jews in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, proclaiming himself as the Old Testament Messiah, which means the anointed one or the king, proclaiming himself as fulfillment of the Old Testament as the king, God's king, king of the Jews, king of the world, really. And so we've been going through much of that loop. The first 13 chapters that we've covered so far has uh, covered most of his three-year ministry, mostly up in the north where he uh, grew up in Galilee, Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, which was down south, but his parents moved north when he was young, so he grew up in the north in Galilee, uh, away from the temple in Judea and he grew up in obscurity and silence and then had his three-and-a-half-year ministry. And so now for the first 13 chapters here of Luke, we're about midway through the book, and for the rest of Luke's gospel from chapter 13 on to chapter 24 is a really short and condensed uh, period of time in Jesus' ministry. We think it lasts anywhere from six months to two to three months. Not quite sure, but that's pretty close. Uh, We saw, so in these last... Three to six months. What Jesus is doing is making a very deliberate trek from his hometown up in the northern Galilee, and he's going down south to where the temple is, where the feasts are celebrated, Passovers celebrated, where sacrifices are made, where the Jewish leadership has its headquarters and the Sanhedrin, and even the governor of the Rome who oversees that area is nearby. And so Jesus is heading there, down to Judea. He's going. South, but he's not going straight south because if he did, he'd go through Samaria, and that was half-breeds, half-Jews, half-a polluted people, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Jesus did. Jesus loved everybody, but he's, his route is going around Samaria, and now he's going into that area called the Decapolis, over across the uh, Jordan River that goes down the Decapolis area of those cities, and then below that is what is called Perea, and that's pretty much where he's been in the most recent sermons we've been covering in chapter 12 of Luke and chapter 13. So probably somewhere in Perea, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. And then he's eventually going to make his route across the Jordan River, heading towards Jerusalem, uh, because he knows that's where he's going to fulfill his purpose for coming. That's where he's going to die. He knows this. He doesn't know all the details, because the father was revealing information little by little, incrementally. He didn't let Jesus know everything all at the same time. Did Jesus know everything all at the same time during his ministry? No, he didn't. It was revealed as the Father uh, found it necessary, as he was trusting the Father every step of the way. Well, I thought he was God. Yes, Jesus is God, and he was God incarnate. And yet he agreed to and entrusted himself 100% to the Father to be 100% dependent upon the Father, which meant... He gave up his right to exercise his godly authority of omniscience the entire time he was incarnate for those 33 and a half years. So he trusted the Father every step of the way. So, on any given occasion, Jesus didn't necessarily know everything as the God man. But sometimes uh, he knew things that no human being could know. But he definitely knows that he is on a mission. He knows why he's born. He must fulfill scripture by dying as the Savior. And in Luke chapter 9, uh, we saw earlier, verse 51, it said, when the days were approaching, the days of his crucifixion, the days of his uh, death and resurrection, the days of his ascension, when the days were approaching, the time for him to die, it, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. So that's uh, Luke 9.51. So that's where we've been ever since. Luke 9.51, we've been on this slow, circuitous path heading to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. The New American Standard says, Uh, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. The Greek text actually says he set his face on Jerusalem. That's more specific and concrete and graphic. He fixed his gaze on Jerusalem. He was fixated on Jerusalem. That was his target. His eyes were on target. He was not going to take his eyes off the target. He knew his purpose. He's going to Jerusalem to die, and he will not be derailed, distracted So he knows the will of the Father, and that's what he's been doing. And so he's still in process of doing that. So that's the background here for Luke 13. Look at verse 22. We just saw he preached one of his longest sermons in his ministry with tens of thousands of people crushing in on him. It was a comprehensive sermon in terms of a a biblical worldview, ending with calling people to repentance that they might be saved. And also a rebuke. And then we saw last week that he continued his ministry and he's going along and it says he entered into a synagogue. We don't know exactly where it was, but maybe somewhere in Perea on the east side of the Jordan River. Because synagogues, we know from history even, are just, were just strewn all over Israel. Hundreds and hundreds of synagogues. Accessible to every Jewish community. They say that what, they needed 10 or 12 men to constitute a synagogue, a gathering of the people. So synagogues were everywhere. One temple... In Jerusalem, synagogues everywhere. And I don't know if you picked up on this last week. It was interesting. But as he was teaching in the synagogue, there he noticed a woman in the synagogue. A woman in the synagogue, the place of worship, the place of, of learning. That is significant because that was not typical of the ancient people, the ancient pagans. They didn't see men and women as equal. They didn't allow their women to learn. They didn't gather together men and women well the Jews did because that's what god required because in the very beginning god made humanity in his image he made them male and female so that's just another testimony to the truth of biblical christianity and what god, how god views every person no distinction between male or female all humans made in god's image and so he and then his compassion and love just comes out as he's got all these people he's teaching Uh, He has the mission of the Father, and at the same time, always because he has a heart of love and compassion, he notices somebody hurting, and that was that woman that Austin preached about last week. Uh, The love of Christ, always going out to the needy, those who are hurting, those who need to be relieved and set free. This woman being demon-possessed, but also the crippling stranglehold of sin is really what uh, snares us all. That's why he came, and so he was gracious and compassionate towards this woman. Did a miracle, and as always, he had his naysayers criticizing him for doing a miracle. On the Sabbath day, because they were legalists, these were the religious leaders, they were legalists. They believed in the Mosaic Law, but they twisted the Mosaic Law. So, that was the context. That's where we're coming off of Jesus doing that ministry, he preached this long sermon, tens of thousands of people. People are curious; they're following him; they're crushing in on him. He's always teaching and always teaching, committed to doing that, speaking the truth. Synagogues, wherever he can, on a hillside. That's why he came. Jesus is uh, the savior, but he's also a teacher. That was his ministry. That constituted what he did. That was his agenda. Mark one says that Jesus came preaching and teaching. That's what he did. Teaching what? Truth. Always truth speaking to the minds of the people directly, the very words of God. It wasn't about emotion. It wasn't about mysticism. It wasn't about experience. It was about the truth, setting people free in how they think with the very thoughts of God. That's what Jesus did. He was a teacher, not a social justice warrior or anything like that. That is not why he came. He was a teacher. He was called rabbi, which means teacher. And he welcomed that term. And that's what he was doing. That was his ministry That was his mission. So he came teaching, he taught in the synagogue, and now he's teaching once again. He's out uh, among the people, just picking up after this uh, synagogue incident. Uh, And then the last thing they were talking about was the kingdom of God. And so let's pick up on Luke 13, verse 22 to verse 30. He continues on in his ministry, heading to Jerusalem. Verse 22 says, And he was passing through from one city and village to another. That's deliberate. Jesus never did anything flippantly, randomly, out of schedule, uh, coincidentally or anything like that. He was on a mission from the Father in complete and total perfect obedience. So going from one little village and town to another was for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the truth of the kingdom, that he was the Messiah of the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. That's what he's preaching in all these villages. So he's going through from one city and village to another, teaching, because that's what he did, all the while proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, because that's his goal. You can imagine him leaving that crowd of tens of thousands of people out there in the open air. And he ended with judgment Reprimanding the people, calling them hypocrites, calling them to repent so you don't know what the reaction was from the crowds. Maybe he ostracized most of them. Very possible. But he continues moving. He's got his disciples with him, his 12 apostles. He's got some of the faithful women with him. All the while, his little entourage is moving on. It's the remnant. It's the few. He called them the little flock in that sermon that we saw in Luke 12. Remember, tens of thousands of people. And he said, my little flock, it's just a few people who are faithful, who are loyal, who are courageous. So those are the ones following him, with him, actually. The 70, maybe, that he sent out and trained, they're going ahead, doing reconnaissance for him and going to doors and finding hospitable homes where he can stay as he passes through. The 70 faithful servants sent out two by two, they're probably with him as well. Who else is with him? Well, the bad guys. They continue to haunt him, follow him, shadow him, this is the, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish leadership. We've seen it time and time again. Early on, it said they, from that point on, they purposed to kill him. From that point on, they, found they wanted to find a way to trip him up, either to expose him and make him look uh, or to shame him publicly so he'd be discredited, or to get him on a legal matter so they might be able to actually arrest him and do away with him, even kill him is what it said. So they're like a pack of hyenas in the bushes, in the shadows, off in a distance, always following him within earshot. Because it said they're always trying to catch him in something in his teaching. So that's what this crowd probably looks like as it's moving its way to Jerusalem. So he's passing through from one city and village to another, uh, teaching, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And then verse 23, And someone said to him, and we've seen this, right? Uh, where somebody interrupts his teaching, whether it's uh, in the synagogue, in somebody's home where he's having a meal. Most recently we saw this, where he's teaching to tens of thousands of people, he's preaching a sermon, and then somebody interrupts him with a question. What did that happen? Three times we saw in Luke 12, he was interrupted three times, at least. And Jesus seems to always be accommodating. He, he's, there to be with the people. He's the great shepherd. When, If you're a shepherd and one of your sheep makes a noise or comes up or draws attention to himself, you don't just sh- you know, shut them up and get away. No, because you're the shepherd. So that's why he accommodates the people. Even when they're dumb questions, self-centered questions, Jesus entertains these questions. He doesn't shut them down. And that's what we have here. Somebody just spontaneously shouts out. We don't know how big the crowd is. Maybe it was fairly large. Somebody shouts out a question. It's it's just interesting to think about if you were there with hundreds or thousands of people and there's Jesus teaching, would would you shout out a question in the middle of everything? Are you that kind of person? Is that your kind of personality? I'd say there are few people who are like that. Uh, most of us are kind of sheepish, and oh, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to disrupt everybody and everybody looking at me and cause a scene. And then there's the very few. Oh, I don't mind. I'll do that. And then there's others, and we're cheering them on. I'm not, I would never do that, but I'm sure glad he did. I'm sure glad she said that or he asked that question because I wanted to know the answer to that question. So uh, that's what's going on here. Someone said, we don't know who this is. Someone asks a question, Someone said to Jesus, verse 23, Lord, and this doesn't, by calling him Lord Kurios, that's just a term of respect. You could almost translate it as sir. It doesn't mean somebody who knows that Jesus is the God-man. I mean, his apostles still haven't figured that out. This is just a term of respect. Lord, so they knew that Jesus was a person of authority. So they are showing respect. Sir, are there just a few who are being saved? Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? By the way, I'm not going to make it all the way to verse 30. uh, Because as I was going through this passage, I got stuck in verse 23. (laughs) I I couldn't get out of verse 23. Well, actually, I couldn't get out of verse 24 (laughs) because of Jesus' answer. But even the, the question... It's like they're going along, Jesus is teaching. We don't even know if this had anything to do with what Jesus was talking about. And somebody asked this question. This is actually a great question. I I would like to know the answer to this question. But I'd probably be too cowardly to ask it in this setting. Lord, are there just a few people who are being saved? That was his question. Lord, how many people are going to be saved? Or the implication rather is, Lord, it seems like few people are going to be saved. Is that true? Another way to say it is, Lord, because this is a Jewish community of people, they have the Old Testament. They know the Old Testament. They believe in the Old Testament. They know there's only two places you go when you die, heaven or hell. That's the testimony of the Old Testament. That is the testimony of Jesus. That is the testimony of the New Testament. That is clearly what Christianity teaches. Old Testament religion taught that as well. There's only two destinies. You only go to heaven or hell. And saved is synonymous with being saved, knowing God in this life. And then when you die, you go immediately into heaven, just like King David said in 1,000 B.C. in Psalm 23. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is that? That's a reference to heaven in the afterlife, being with God. Abraham knew this. When you die and you know God, you go to be with God in heaven. You don't go into soul sleep. You don't go into purgatory. You don't go into reincarnation. You either go to heaven or hell. They're real places, they are eternal, they are conscious, they are deserved. And your destiny is determined based upon how you responded to the truth of God, and in particular, how you responded to Jesus Christ. And so this Jew asked the question, Sir, Lord, Master, Teacher, is it true that only few people are going to be saved? So the other way to ask that is, Sir, is it true? It sounds like, are most people going to hell? That's the same question. Don't you want to know Jesus' answer? I do. Are most people going to hell? So let's look at Jesus' answer. You can almost, uh, <laughs> you can anticipate the way Jesus answered, because when Jesus fields spontaneous questions, usually we are surprised, if not shocked, and stunned by Jesus' answer. Usually, at least I am. Somebody asks a question, and then Jesus gives an answer. Usually I'm scratching my head saying, Whoa, I never would have said that. Or sometimes even, whoa, I don't even know why Jesus answered that way. How does that even relate to the question? But then upon further inquiry and study, you realize, oh, Jesus, he's the master teacher. He gave the perfect answer. That's why he is so, that's why the Bible is so deep with such substance. It is so rich. As you look at Jesus' answer and you're thrown off kilter, and that's how I was this week, and it took me, uh, I don't even know if I got off of being off kilter. I, I changed the title of my sermon, I think, four times. But it had to be given at a certain time during this week so the bulletin could be published. <laughs> so that was one of my preliminary titles of the sermon today. Few will be saved. And then I changed it three times since then. Just so you know, upon further study of the passage, I came up with, after further study, going all the way down to verse 30, I determined, well, no, actually the title should be Many Will Be Saved. Wow! That's quite a 180 flip-flop. How do you go from few being saved to many? Well, that's what I determined. I still think that's true. But it's too late to change the sermon. It's in the bulletin. <laughs> then upon further study yesterday, I was like, no, that's, that's not good enough. If I could change the title one more time, you can scratch this out or put it next to it. It's just simply strive, strive, with an exclamation point, strive. That's what this is about, strive. We'll explain what we mean by that. So this spontaneous person asks this question. Lord, are there just a few souls, a few people who are being saved? And before I go into the answer, verse 24, I also just pondered, why would somebody ask this question anyway at this point? Uh, We don't know who this is, but like I said, I think it's a good question. I think it's a sincere question. I would even say it's a legitimate question. I think it's an informed question. I think whoever asked this question, they, they were probably, I mean, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like they were new to Jesus' teaching, hearing him teach for the first time. I think this was a, something that somebody had been ruminating on, and they have been following Jesus' ministry and teaching for a while, and they had some empirical data to go by, and they were a little confused, and they needed clarification, and maybe they're kind of on the fence or the brink, because we know the apostles are confused. The 12 apostles who have been with Jesus for almost three years, 24-7, even at the time of his death, after three plus years, they are still confused. They still don't get it, or a lot of it. So that makes sense. If somebody is confused and they need clarity, Uh, but why would they even ask this question? Wow, Lord, it, it seems like only a few people are going to be saved. In light of what you're saying, in light of what I'm hearing, in light of your teaching, and what you just said in Luke 12, what you said back in Nazareth two years ago on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, when Jesus literally said, enter by the narrow gate, which leads to the kingdom, few there be that find it. That was like two years previous. We don't know if this person heard that sermon, but Jesus did say that. That was a part of his teaching. Few, broad is the road that leads to destruction, to hell. Broad, many go there. So if this was Matthew 7, it seemed like, yeah, whoa, based on what Jesus just said, it seems like only a few people are going to be saved. It seems like most people are going to hell. And if that were true, then you have to ask the legitimate question, oh, I thought God was a God of love. A God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness. The good news. What's good news about that? But this isn't Matthew 7. This isn't two years ago in Galilee. This is a completely different situation. And we we have to go with the context of what he said here. We can't take those words and foist them in here if they don't belong here. And they don't. But this person who asked... Uh, it seems like only a few people are going to be saved based on, number one, things you've been teaching recently, especially that scathing sermon you just gave in uh, Luke 12, where basically Jesus ended that sermon by pointing his finger and castigating the entire multitude of people, saying, you're a bunch of hypocrites. That's what he said. Except for the little flock, the few faithful in the audience. So, whoa, that's, yeah, yeah. Wow, that sounds like a few people are going to be saved. And then there were other incidents that did happen in the ministry of Jesus prior to this that would maybe be indicators that not many people are going to be saved. We saw in John 6, or at some point in John 6 in Jesus' ministry, it says many of his disciples, after Jesus said, I came down from heaven, you must eat my flesh and my blood, and no one who eats my flesh and blood is not worthy of me. And it says from that point on, many of his disciples followed him no more. It just seems like Jesus is ostracizing people everywhere he goes. And this has been going on for three plus years. How many incidents now have been public where his mother Mary and his younger siblings, at least four or five of them, his three brothers and his sisters, were publicly questioning him, embarrassed by him? Uh, John 7 his brothers categorically wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't even believe what he was saying was true. They made fun of him. His family, immediate family. Boy, if your family's not even into this, how can anybody else embrace what you're saying? You're ostracizing everybody, Jesus. Your own family, your own disciples, the multitudes. And probably the uh, the zinger was the fact that he is ostracized pretty much the entire leadership of religion in Israel at the time. He's a religious man. Jesus is a religious man. He says he's basically a prophet, a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And then the authorities on the Old Testament Scriptures, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, of all people should know what the Old Testament teaches, of all people should know who the Messiah will be, what his profile is. And when he does come, they should be able to identify him of all people. And not one of the Pharisees uh, was willing to bow the knee or get baptized by John the Baptist, the one who was proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb of God. So the leadership, wholesale, the entire leader, the Sanhedrin, all 70 members... All the Pharisees who run the synagogues, the Sadducees who run the temple and all the sacrifices and monitor all that, they've blackballed Jesus from the very beginning. He has ostracized the entire religious leadership of Israel. So I, I could understand why this person is asking, wow, who's believing your message? And you know, this, this if you take it forward, it's kind of... Plays itself out. Because when Jesus gets to do what he came to do, which was die on the cross, who's with him? Well, his apostles have abandoned him and every, all the other disciples. He's at the cross being crucified and there's his mother and a few women and John, the, the apostle. That's it. Where are his supporters? There aren't any. You, you read the words at the foot of the cross, it's just constant mockery as crowds are walking by, sneering at him. There's nobody there in his defense. After all, it was the multitudes that shouted for his blood at the crucifixion, crucify him. That was the mass of the crowds of the Jews there's evidence right there while wow, it seems like very few will be saved maybe mary a few of the women and your and john the apostle your cousin then he dies he rises again he appears in a resurrected body to his select followers and the only amount they can muster up is 120 people Out of millions of Jews in that day. Millions. When he ascends into heaven, what is left? 120 faithful, that's it, 120. In Jerusalem, that is. Well, how many were there up north where he grew up? Well, in Galilee up north, after he rose again from the dead, appeared for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven, it says there was just a crowd of 500 people. It's a little more than 120, but that's not much out of millions of Jews who were exposed to his ministry, 500. So, yeah, you could ask that question. So this takes us to a a doctrine that's all throughout the Bible, and if you've never heard of it, you need to add it into your biblical worldview and your theology, and that's the doctrine of the remnant, the doctrine of the remnant, the doctrine of the faithful few, the remnant. Remnant means a a few select out of a, a greater whole, the remnant. That is all throughout the Bible. Uh, What that means is, out of many, only a few are actually loyal. Only a few believe. Only a few are sincere. Only a few stick with it. Only a few remain. I think only a few really get it and understand. This is the doctrine of the remnant. It is out throughout the entire Bible. Few that is one reason why Jesus say, could say legitimately in Matthew 7, Few there be that find it, long term, in the big scheme of things. After all, Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament. The scriptures given as a gift from Yahweh to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel, Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. That's John one eleven. His own received him not. That means there was a wholesale rejection by the entire nation of Israel. Save a few. Save the remnant. The faithful remnant. The faithful few. That's what remnant means. It's the faithful few. It's all throughout the Bible. Uh, You can go to the very beginning uh, in Genesis chapter 6. There there was an explosion of the population from the time of Adam and Eve that reached a a peak or a pinnacle in the days of Noah. Noah probably 1,500 years after Adam was created, 2,500 B.C., there were maybe millions of people on earth at that time. And God says, you know what? Sin and wickedness is so rampant, it is so prolific, that I'm going to wipe out the whole world, save eight people. Can you imagine tens of millions, millions of people, and God saved only eight people. And it, he specifically said that Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a faithful Man, it doesn't even say that Noah's wife was faithful. Or his three sons. But he saved Noah, Noah was faithful, and he saved Noah's family. His three sons, their wives, and his wife. So eight people. That's the remnant. That's the faithful remnant. So that's 2500 BC. You can go out throughout the entire Bible, and you will see this doctrine of the remnant, the faithful few. All the way to the very end, even during the church age. That's why Jesus said uh, during the church age there's going to be wheat, and tares. Or wheat, that's true believers, and weeds, fake Christians. And fake Christians probably will dominate in terms of apparent population. It's like today they say, oh, we have how many Christians on planet Earth out of 8 billion people? Well, oh, we have over, get this, 4 billion Christians on planet Earth. Isn't that exciting? Not really. Because of who's being counted as Christians in that number. It's not the faithful remnant. its few who truly understand who truly believe the true gospel who truly stay loyal who truly get it who have truly been saved so that's the doctrine of the remnant this is very helpful to understand the doctrine of the remnant that it's all throughout the bible jesus taught on it he talked about it he warned the people and that's why you could say you grow up with somebody and oh i thought they were a christian they they went to church they went to bible study they walked the line they got baptized They committed the church. They even joined the church. They served in the church. They prayed. They were such a nice person, even for years, even for decades. And then when they're 43, they they turn their back on Christ, and they just walk out and become an atheist. How did that happen? Well, they didn't lose their salvation. They were never saved in the first place. They were not a part of the faithful remnant. That's what Judas was. By all appearances, Judas was a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ for three and a half years. And finally, he is exposed in the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus was the one who exposed him. Jesus knew he was a phony. The 11 other apostles had no idea. They thought he was real, legit. So the doctrine of the faithful few, remnant. It's helpful for us practically to realize this is a teaching of the Bible. Because then you can... Interpret things more properly. Oh, why did this happen? Why did they get derailed? Why did they go off? Why did they uh, go from being a Christian to an atheist, agnostic, skeptic, critic of the faith, Satanist, whatever? Because they were never saved. And unless they repent and get saved, then they would never have been part of the faithful remnant, the faithful few. So, let's go back here. Now we understand this guy's question a little better. Maybe. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And now we'll go to the answer. Verse 24. And Jesus said to them, so he always uses somebody's question as an opportunity to turn it into a Sunday school lesson or a sermon or a lecture for everybody. Hey, there was a question publicly stated. In the public domain, therefore, I will answer it accordingly. In the public domain for everybody. Put your seatbelt on. Here we go. And Jesus said, uh, so, Jesus, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus answered, saying, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Wow. Will not be able. At first blush, it sounds like, yeah, uh, Jesus is saying, um, yes, only a few will be saved. If you don't read it carefully, and if you don't read the rest of the context down to verse 30, you might even conclude, yeah, right here. If you take the verse out of context, which people do, you might say based on this, yeah, Jesus said that most people are going to hell. That's not what he's saying. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house, that's Jesus the judge, or God, raises, or gets up, and then shuts the door, what door? The door to salvation, the door to the kingdom of heaven the door to redemption, the door to reconciliation, the door to knowing God, the door to eternal life, the door to heaven, the door to forgiveness of sin, the door to being right with God, the door to being born again, that's what it means. Once the head of the house, the master of the Lord Jesus, the judge, or God, shuts that door, and you... He personalizes it, begin to stand outside the kingdom, outside salvation, outside justification, outside salvation, and knock on the door, God's door, the door of the kingdom, because you can't get in, crying out, saying, Lord, open up, open the door to us. And he, that's God, the judge, will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. No, I'm not gonna open the door. You're not getting in, you don't forget forgive, you don't get forgiveness of sin, you don't get heaven. You don't get redemption. You don't get to come into the kingdom. You're not one of mine. You must remain in outer darkness. You must remain in judgment. You must remain in eternal hell. That's what this means. And the picture here, I just couldn't get Noah's ark out of my mind. God told Noah, this world is wicked. It is evil. I'm going to wipe it out. Save you and your family. So I want you to build an ark. Based on Genesis 6, we think, Noah spent 120 years building that ark. Why? Because it was a huge, massive ark. 120 years. The Bible also says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What was he doing while well, he's hammering away? Repent, for the kingdom is... Ha- well, actually, the kingdom is going down. He was a preacher of righteousness. And what did they do? They mocked him. They mocked him. Oh, that old man. What? An- I mean, he's 500 years old at the time. Senile. What's he talking about? Rain, what's that? Flood, he's making up words. So maybe for 120 years, they completely mocked Noah. And then Genesis 7 says, then the rains came down. After 40 days, so much rain came down from the sky and also from uh, the earth itself, that the uh, the ark began to float after 40 days. Began to float. And then, for another several months, 110 more days, it kept flooding, kept raining. So every high mountain on planet Earth was covered 15 plus fathoms. And everybody was wiped out. Everything that breathed died, except Noah and his family that was inside. So you can imagine when the flood started coming down, people began to panic and they rushed to Noah's door, door of that ark that he'd been building, and they're just banging on the door, crying, screaming. And the screaming just got worse as people began to drown and die and families and children. And God didn't let them in. Why? Because it was too late. You had your chance to repent. You didn't believe. You hardened your heart. There's a time where it is too late. God is gracious. God is loving. God is patient and compassionate. But there is a time when it is too late. And they waited too long. And that's what Jesus is saying here. People are knocking on the door. It's too late. Um... That's why in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but they won't be able. Well, why is it that many are going to seek to get in, but won't be able? Well, he gives the answer. They won't be able because of his answer in 25. What he doesn't say is, well, many won't be able to get in for salvation because they're not elect. He doesn't say that. That's not the correct answer. He doesn't even say uh, many won't be able to get in and get saved because only a few get saved and most people go to hell. That's not his answer either. His answer is very specific. They won't be able to get in because the door was closed. They waited too long. They didn't repent when they had a chance. This is just reiterating what he said when he began his ministry in Luke 4. He got baptized. He began his ministry. The Spirit of God came upon him. He immediately went into his hometown synagogue, opened up Isaiah 61, read... 61, the Messiah is here and he came to preach the good news. And today, in your hearing, the scripture is fulfilled. I am here. And then it goes on to quote and say, it is the favorable time of the Lord. It is the favorable time of the Lord. Here is a season of grace, of mercy, of the good news. And it's going to last three and a half years long at least with Jesus present, among these Jews, making this mass appeal to all of Israel. The favorable time of the Lord. Well, the favorable time of the Lord in light of Isaiah 61 that was granted as a gift to the nation of Israel ended. It had a terminal date. And that was basically when Jesus died went to heaven for the nation of Israel. They, They abandoned their Savior, the favorable time of the Lord. And then God began his church, which is, has one mission, and that's to proclaim the gospel, the good news. That's our mission. It's not to have soup kitchens. It's not to be social justice warriors. It's not to be moral, strictly and only moral. It's to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saving message for sinners. That's our goal. That's our mission, and that's what the church does. And that's how God saves people, and he saves them. Through his gospel, through his good news, through the work of Christ, and saves their souls. That's our mission. And so now, really, is another manifestation or iteration of the favorable year of the Lord. It's time to hear the gospel and be saved during this lifetime. As long as you have breath and you're conscious and you hear and you hear the truth about Jesus Christ, you need to embrace it. You need to bow the knee. You need to. Embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess that you are a sinner. Your sin has separated you from God, the Creator. You deserve condemnation. You deserve judgment as a sinner. I deserved condemnation from God, my Creator, and God, my Judge. And yet, graciously, He's willing to save us and forgive us of all of our sin based on not what we do, but on what He did through Christ. It's a gift. That's the good news. And as long as you're alive and as long as you breathe, you have the opportunity. That's your favorable year of the Lord. But that day will end. And it ends the moment you breathe your last in this life. And if you breathe your last in this life with your fist in, your, in the face of God, having rejected Jesus Christ, then when your spirit leaves your body, your spirit immediately goes into torment, into hell, into judgment, after having gone to the throne of Jesus Christ, the judge. And he pronounces his verdict. I never knew you. Depart into wickedness, eternal damnation. So let's go back to verse 24. Why are these people not able to? Because they waited too late. That's why it's a beautiful thing that Pastor Derek's preaching through Hebrews because a theme all throughout Hebrews is there are people on the fence. They have all the information they need. They have all the intelligence they need. Salvation, by the way, is not a matter of, oh, if they just had more reasons to believe. If they just had more evidence. No. If you have the gospel, if you know who truly Jesus is and what Jesus said about your sin that separated you from your Creator, and you know the solution that Jesus provided, you have enough information. You don't need any more evidence. You've got the gospel. That's the truth about reality. And then you have to make a decision about the gospel. I either embrace it and it saves my life and my soul or I reject it and I'm condemned forever. And so the book of Hebrews is all about that. There are these people, probably with Jewish background, they know the truth, they know the Old Testament scriptures, they've heard about Jesus Christ, they've even heard about the gospel and the movement of the church and they're on the fence and many of them are indecisive. They're being pulled by family, background, heritage, wrong thinking, deception, Fickle, superficial interpretation of life. Whatever it is. Materialism. Pulling and tugging at them. And that the Hebrews author just keeps pleading with them. Today is the day of salvation. Today, do not harden your heart. That's pretty much what Jesus is saying here. Uh, there will be a day when it is too late. And the door will be shut. Which is a good reminder. This is real practical theology. There is not a second opportunity for salvation after you die. Do you know some religions teach that? Some people who call themselves Christians teach that. After you die, you get another opportunity. No, Hebrews 9. It is appointed to every person to die once and then immediately is judgment and then the verdict is rendered. That's it. Your fate is sealed forever. So this is Jesus' answer. Uh, Just a couple of notes about the way he answers here. Okay, so the question is, uh, Lord... Are only a few people going to be saved? And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say just straight up, uh, yes, only a few people will be saved. He doesn't, he doesn't directly answer the question, which is typical Jesus, right? So he doesn't say, uh, yes, only a few will be saved. But he, he also doesn't say the converse. He doesn't say, oh, no. No, many people will be saved. He doesn't say that either, at least Immediately. Well, then what does he do? Uh, well, he, redact- he redirects the question. He actually eventually answers the question. But he redirects it, refocuses it, because he's the master teacher. He's the God-man. And he turns it from a really a, kind of a shallow, superficial, academic question, like a stat. Here, give me a stat. How many people are being saved? Give me a number. What's the ratio? He doesn't give a stat. He gives a status of a person, of an individual, of their soul, of their destiny. So he doesn't answer this guy's question immediately, who was basically saying how many, how many, how many. That was his question. Jesus didn't answer that question. His question he does answer a question. His answer is it's who. It's not how many, it's who. Not how many get saved, it's who gets saved, and he personalizes it, and he says, you. Do not be concerned about those other people. Don't be concerned about all those other people that don't get saved. It's about you. Are you going to be saved? That's what Jesus does. He personalizes it. So he takes it from being academic to personal, not answering how many, but who. He also answers the question of how. You don't need to know how many people are being saved. Basically, that's at God's discretion. How many? What you need to know is how to be saved. That's why, that's his answer. It's really how. How do you get saved? Well, you strive. This is an interesting word, strive. Agonizomai is the Greek word. Agonizomai. Agony. 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 There you go. How graphic is that? Used maybe less than ten times in the New Testament. Pretty much always consistently agonized, just like it sounds. Very picturesque. From what they know historically, it came out of the the Greek games. The highest level of athletic competition. Unlike the, our Olympics today, is you competed to get the crown. You competed to win. And sometimes you competed to save your life. That's why you agonized. You gave your all. Literally, so that word is translated uh, several times in the New Testament as agonize, strive, struggle. Here, uh, we'll read one in First Corinthians 9, but here it's strive. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 9, or you can just listen. Here's how Paul, Paul uses this word a few times, probably more than any other New Testament author, but here's one of the ways, he, this is New American Standard, uh, this word agonizomai. <clears throat> and he's talking about uh, being a Christian, being a faithful Christian, a loyal Christian, Consistent Christian? It basically says Christian, the Christian life is not easy. Can I get an amen? The Christian life is not easy. Being a true Christian, it is difficult. It is hard. That's Paul's context in 1 Corinthians 9. And as a result, do you not know that those who run in the race all run, competing in the Christian life, running the Christian race, but only one receives the prize? He's talking about a race. So run, Christian, in such a way that you may win the prize. Not nonchalant, aimlessly, without focus or purpose. That isn't how you live the Christian life. It's your priority. And you need to live life accordingly. So run in such a way that you might win. And here's verse 25 where he uses the word agonismite. So here's how you should live the Christian life. Everyone, or Everyone, Every Christian who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Everyone who competes, so the word competes there is agonize. So everyone in the Greek games who competes in the games exercises great self-control in every part of their life. They live a discipline. By the way, that is a horrible translation. New American Standard. That's my Bible. I love the King James. Listen to this. How poetic. Yet right on with the Greek text. Uh, 1611. Every man that striveth, that is hard to say. Striveth with a TH at the end. Every person that striveth for the mastery, there it is. Struggle. Uh, Paul also translates this word agonizomai with the word fight. Fight the good fight. It's the same word. This isn't competing like you're in a monopoly tournament. No. This is a fight. This is a struggle. This is a battle. Sometimes this is to the death. That's the word. Agonize, strain, giving it your all. So every Christian who strives after struggles, the struggle, that's a great translation. Are you down with the struggle we hear today? Are you down with the struggle? That's on a superficial human level of whether it's poverty or racism, but that's at a low level. The struggle is at a higher level, Jesus says. It's spiritual struggle, a spiritual battle. And we are all in a spiritual battle. We have eternal uh, enemies, Satan being the foremost. That's the struggle. That's the battle. That's the war. Satan is 24-7 about uh, stealing souls away from God and Jesus the Savior. He's after your soul. Satan hates you. He's trying to deceive you. He's trying to uh, mess up God's plans for you. He's trying to do everything he can to get you to go away from Jesus Christ. That's the real struggle. That's where it starts at a spiritual level, but a real level that has eternal consequences. That's the battle. That's what we need to keep in mind when we're talking about striving and battling and struggling struggling arduously for salvation, for spiritual salvation. As Jesus said, strive. You're in a war. You have enemies. They hate you. Starting with sin and the devil and the world. They're all your enemy. So Paul says, everyone who competes in the race... Exercises great self-control, then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we as Christians, we work, we strive, we live this life to receive a crown that is imperishable that will last forever. And that crown is eternal life, forgiveness of sin, being in the presence of God. So that's just one way that this word agonize is used. So go back now to what Jesus said about answering this question uh, about salvation. By the way, the word "they're saved, saved, that's a familiar term. Will few be saved or who will be saved? And then Jesus says, well, you need to concentrate on how to be saved and will you be saved? Not how many, but will you be saved and are you doing the right thing to get saved? Are you doing the right thing to get saved? That's a great question. That's practical for us. We try to do evangelism today, right? The Great Commission? What's the Great Commission? Telling others about The gospel of Jesus Christ. We do door-to-door evangelism, and you do personal evangelism for what goal? To to share the gospel with people that they might be saved. So that is of interest, primary interest for us, right? How people might be saved. So when you ask the question, well, how are people saved? Probably most of us would not give the answer Jesus gave here. Because he gives the answer in verse 24 of how, how can a person be saved? In modern day evangelical Christianity, this is not the answer you give when somebody says, how must a person be saved? What are our answers? Uh, well, it's um, well. first of all, it's easy to be saved. You heard that one? It's easy. Which is the exact opposite of the word Jesus uses here, strive. Agonize. It is hard. So that's not Jesus' answer. It is not easy to be saved. I mean, he did say... My yoke is easy, but that's not the same statement. Theoretically, or based on Jesus' offer, it's easy because you don't have to do anything, right? It's he did all the work. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He dies as a substitute, and he offers his very life as the gift of salvation. That's easy to understand. But getting saved is not easy. You have to strive Strive. Don't be confused. Jesus is not saying you need to work for your salvation. He's not saying that. He's saying you need to have the right mindset about how to attain salvation. And what, what, it, what is salvation, by the way? This person used the word saved. There's a lot of confusion about that. What does it mean to be saved? Well, Jesus' definition of what it means to be saved is in verse 28 and verse 29. And he says, if you are saved, that it's the synonymous with entering the kingdom of God. Like in John 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again, in order to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the domain of God, the reign of God, the sovereign control of God, being in God's house. God is in charge. And to be saved means you are a legitimate citizen of his kingdom. Under his domain, under his authority, he is your king on a personal level. You belong there. Whether that is in heaven right now, in the spiritual realm, or whether it's on earth right now in this physical realm. The kingdom of God is having a right relationship with the king and his kingdom, which is salvation, and it's spiritual salvation, and all that that entails. So how do you get saved? Well, you must strive. You must strive to enter through the narrow door. So it's not... He's not saying strive or work for your salvation, but he's saying, here's how you get saved. You strive to enter through the narrow door. Well, who's the, who's the narrow door? It's, Jesus said that. He is the door, right? I am the door to salvation. There is no other door. You can't go over the fence. You can't go through that door. There are no, are no other ways. I am the way, the one and only way to the Father who is in heaven. It's only through me, John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12. There's only one way through Jesus. He is the narrow door. That's what he means. Strive to get to that door, to get to the right door. Do not be distracted. Do not get derailed. Do not listen to false teachers. Do not be apathetic. You've got to work hard at it. You've got to be serious about it. You've got to be prayerful about it. You can't fall in love with the things of this world. That's what it means to strive after the door, the right door, the right relationship with Christ. Don't be like Judas who got waylaid and distracted by money and everything else and his ego. He didn't get He didn't lose his salvation, but he got deceived. He got deceived. Don't do that. Strive. Strive to enter the narrow door. That's how you get saved. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. So all the religious so-called leaders of history and prophets and saviors, their door led to eternal hell. Whether it was Buddha or Confucius or Gandhi or Joseph Smith or Muhammad or Allah or... Pick your religion. Pick your philosophy. Pick your savior. They were all counterfeits. They were, Jesus called them thieves in the book of John. They were thieves and robbers. God said in Ezekiel 18, every soul is mine. It belongs to me. I own every soul. There's only one way to be saved. It is through Jesus Christ. He is the narrow way. He is the door. He is exclusive. People don't like that. The Pharisees didn't like that. They got angry at Jesus for saying that, that he was the savior. He's the only way to the father. That makes people angry. That's why our message is not popular. You go out into the world, you share with an unbeliever, you tell them, eventually you get to the opportunity to tell them there's only one way and it's through Jesus Christ and it's the Jesus. So sometimes they say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hip on Jesus. Then you start telling them about the Jesus of the Bible. Oh, not that one. Ooh, that was mean. He said that? Oh, I don't believe that. It's got to be an error. No, it's the true Jesus, the narrow way. So, It's striving through the narrow way. That's Jesus Christ, his person. The narrow way is Jesus, his person. It's also his life. It's only through what he did. He came here as a sacrifice. He came as the Lamb of God. He came and lived a perfect life sinlessly for 33 years. years. He was sinless. He was the God-man, and then he purposed to do one thing, and that was to go on a cross and be crucified as a substitute for sinners and absorb the wrath of the Father while he was on that cross for six hours. So that's the only way you can be saved. That's the only thing that appeases or assuages God's wrath and his hatred for sin is through the work of Christ. In other words, we can't save ourselves. We can't do anything to earn God's forgiveness, to earn God's favor. Going to church, saying prayers, doing religion, doing good deeds, that earns zero favor with God and zero forgiveness of sin. That's what it means, the narrow way. There's only one way, and it has to be God's way. It has to be Jesus' way, and that makes people mad. And that's what Luke's pointing out here, that from chapter 13 to 24, people are just going to get more and more angry with Jesus. He's going to ostracize himself from more and more people. And he's not purposely trying to do it. You know what he's doing? All he's doing is telling the truth. That's it. The truth ostracizes people who don't want to hear it. The truth ostracizes sinners. So Jesus is the way and the only way to answer. We're going to stop there, and we're going to pick up next week. Uh, The rest of this from verses 25 to 30. And I'm pretty sure we can finish this whole passage uh, and expound even more. And, And then the rest of this passage, Jesus actually gives us the answer. And he answers the question, how many? Is it few? Or is it many? So come back next week and we'll see what Jesus says. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.